Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. So to lead tonight's Sydney Ideas discussion on approaches to research and treatment of cancer, um, it's my great pleasure to introduce you to um, colleague, friend, and amazing academic, Professor Roger Riddell. Uh, Roger's a medical oncologist and a molecular geneticist and an internationally renowned and award-winning expert on cancer cell immortalization. So, uh, Roger, importantly, is also uh, the director of the Children's Medical Research Institute and a fellow of the Australian Academy of Sciences. And, um, indeed, the Sir Lorimer Dodds Professor in our university's faculty of medicine and health. So, um, thanks very much, Chris. We've been given this question um, to address tonight, and together with my colleagues um, from Westmead, we, we're going to address this question the future of cancer, can we find a cure? And I think it's a deliberately provocative question, um, uh, but I remind you before we start that we already can cure cancer. There are lots of cancers um, that can be cured. Many of them can be cured with a surgeon's knife, and no further treatment is required. There are cancers that can be cured with radiotherapy. There are cancers that even when they are widely spread, can be cured, treated and cured, uh, with combination chemotherapy. It's very important to recognise that, um, to recognise that we have come away uh, a fair way, um, and um, to use that as the basis for understanding where we might go in the future. Now, of course, when asking that question, can we cure cancer, what most people are thinking about um, is about the cancers that have already spread and are beyond um, uh, being benefited by the surgeon's knife. When I began my training as a medical oncologist, I don't practice as a medical oncologist anymore, by the way, it happened for a long time, but at the time I began my training as a medical oncologist, it had recently been discovered that it was possible to cure young men predominantly with widely spread testicular cancer uh, with new, a new combination of chemotherapy. And that led to a lot of excitement about the potential for, uh, for combination chemotherapy. And it's successfully cured many other cancers. Also, to put things into perspective, the first of the really successful targeted treatments had already been discovered. And that was tamoxifen, a, a so-called anti-estrogen, which targets a specific protein uh, called the estrogen receptor. It's probably saved more patient um, years of life um, than any other treatment. In those days, we also conducted many trials of immunotherapy. It seemed like a really obvious idea um, to turn the, um, the immune system against the cancer. All of those trials failed. But overall, it was a time of great optimism. New things have been discovered um, and great progress has been made. Now, since that time, progress in the clinic, I think it would be fair to say, has been steady but slow. In that time, there's been an explosion of our understanding of cancer coming from findings in the laboratory. But that hasn't really been matched uh, by the rate of progress in the clinic. In the past five or so years though, I think, um, there's really been a return to a period of optimism. And you'll hear some of, uh, about some of this tonight. For some specific cancers, there have been some really spectacular advances. Um, and I think it's giving us all a, a lot of hope um, that we may be entering another period of rapid progress. So this evening we're going to hear from uh, four people, so three including myself, uh, who are going to tell us their thoughts and where we're up to. So Anna DeFazio is going to tell us about preparing for precision cancer treatment. Um, Matteo Cardino is going to talk about the brave new world of immunotherapy. Um, and Ken Micklethwaite is going to talk about engineering immunity to cancer. And I'll end this first segment 
by describing the use of big data uh, to select treatment for individual patients. And so, first of all, it's my great pleasure to introduce my colleague, Professor Anna DeFascio. Uh, Anna holds the Sydney West Chair in Translational Cancer Research, University of Sydney at Westmead Hospital. She's co-deputy director of the Sydney West Translational Cancer Research Centre and heads the Gynecological Oncology Research Group at the Westmead Institute for Medical Research. Okay, so in preparing for today's um, question, the future of cancer, can we find a cure? Um, it occurred to me that actually we've got a series of problems that we've got to overcome. Firstly, cancer is not one disease. It's actually over 200 different diseases. Problem number two is each cancer has multiple subtypes. Problem number three, each subtype may need different treatment. So really I propose that uh, we need to change the question can we find a cure or can we cure cancer one cancer type at a time? So what I put up here is a picture of what we might see in terms of conventional care. And I'm using, going to use the example here of ovarian cancer because that's the field of cancer that I work in. So all the different coloured ladies there have all got ovarian cancer. But we know that there are some subtle differences between each of these patients, which I'll actually show you um, better in an upcoming slide. But at the moment, all of those patients will receive the same treatment. We know that, um, so it's essentially a one-size-fits-all. Now, we know that um, uh, quite a few will benefit from that treatment, but we also know that some won't benefit. And there are others that not only will they not benefit, but they'll have very adverse side effects. So what we want to move towards is this scenario of precision medicine, where those same patients will come into the clinic, will under, they'll undergo a whole series of molecular tests, will know exactly which drug is going to be um, exactly the right drug for every patient, and every single patient will benefit. So it's very easy to, to draw a little cartoon to say, um, you know, this is what we want to do. But the practicalities of that are very different. So I could sit here for the, stand here for the rest of the night telling you about the challenges of that, but I'm just going to concentrate on a few. The first is what tests? Like, do we sequence the whole genome? Do we do it like what sort of blood tests? We don't really know the answer to that yet. What about the availability of treatments? Because we know that uh, we might find the right um, the drug that would work in a particular cancer um, uh, patient, but that drug might not be available on the PBS. You know, so you end up with financial toxicity. You know, so that um, we, and we don't actually know whether that particular drug will work in this particular cancer type just because they've got that mutation. So what we need is clinical trials. So you need a clinical trial in your cancer type to, uh, to ask those questions. But what we're finding is that in fact, let's say we wanted to do a clinical trial where we had exactly the right drug for the two little orange ladies there, we would have to screen a whole lot of patients to find those couple of patients uh, to put on that trial. And what we're finding is that if you screen those you know, 20 or 30 patients to find those two, the patients are very invested in the trial, so they're sitting there waiting to get the results of their test. And if it turns out that they are not one of the orange ladies, it's a huge disappointment and a waste of their time because their, their time has gone by, they could have been on a trial that was actually more suitable. Um, and so there's, you know, there's, there's sort of, um, uh, we really um, have to manage this, um, uh, this situation of being able, being able to identify which patients uh, might go on the trial, let alone which drugs might work. So, Here is what we call ovarian cancer 
just looking down the microscope, the pathologist can tell us that, they're, that they're, they look different, so they've got different names. But not only that, underneath each of those, I've got a list of the genes that are where we find mutations in each of those subtypes. And as you can see, that is a complicated picture. And to expect all of those patients to respond to the same treatment um, is, yeah, could be a bit fanciful. But what we are finding that it is in fact that now that we're learning what genes actually drive these different subtypes of ovarian cancer, um, new, new targets, targets for new treatments um, um, are starting to be found. So our challenge is to work out how to identify which patients um, have got those um, changes that might benefit or be able to go to clinical trials to test those treatments. Okay. So to do that, we've implemented a, um, a new program here at Westmead called Innovate. So Innovate stands for Individualised Ovarian Cancer Treatment Through Integration of Genomic Pathology into Multidisciplinary Care. Bit of a mouthful, so I think we'll just stick with, with Innovate for the minute. So in Innovate, um, we have all of our uh, coloured ladies here um, uh, coming into, into the clinic. You can see the map, we've got this um, study open at, um, at a number of centres um, across Sydney, and they will all go, they all go under, um, undergo very extensive molecular testing, so that if that patient relapses and is no longer responding to standard treatment, we'll know exactly which clinical trial to put, uh, to put them on. Um, so far we've uh, recruited um, over, over 300 um, patients, um, and so the molecular testing is being done and we've um, opened up a number of, or we've referred a number of patients, so I'll explain them on to our clinical trials. But one of the things I wanted to tell you about today is one of the challenges is actually how you hold all of this information, because this molecular testing, it's not like your standard um, pathology test. It can be very complicated information and you need it there readily available for the clinicians uh, to be able to, to access. So we've um, implemented an um, online data portal um, uh, called the CBIO portal, where all of this information um, is, is held on this data portal that the researchers and clinicians um, um, uh, can have access to. And I have to say, this is so cool because what we can do is not only, so what I have showed you here is just a summary of all of the patients, but we can actually drill down into individual patients. And here we've drilled down into one patient. And what you can see here is that she has a, a mutation in the BRAF gene. Um, and if you hover over those annotations, it tells you um, all the evidence behind that mutation. Along the top, we can click and find out what drugs would be most suitable for this patient, where those drugs are available from, is it FDA approved. Um, we can actually look at the, at the tumor sample. Um, down the, uh, what you would see down the microscope, we can click on you know, what clinical trials might be available for those patients. So it's actually a really um, a, a cool new way of being able to, to visualise the data and have that information um, readily available um, for the clinicians. So, how are we going? So as I said, we've recruited over around 300 patients so far. Most of them um, haven't pro yet progressed because this is relatively new. Um, but we've got a number where we found um, alterations that we can target. And I've just got, a couple, uh, just got an example here of two patients, just to exemplify what we're trying to do. So in that top graph, it, uh, we're, what we're seeing here is um, it's a blood test called CA125. And the little dotted blue line along the bottom, the straight dotted blue line, is what would be the normal level. So in that patient at the top, you can see she had a, a, a raised um, level. So this is the normal level. You can see she had what was called a raised CA125 to start off with. Each of these little circles is a type of chemotherapy. So what you can see here is this particular patient who has exactly the same type of cancer as the patient <coughs> really did not respond very well to chemotherapy. So her CA125 didn't come down to baseline at all. And then um, unfortunately she um, then passed away in less than 12 months. So quite a sad story. So this is what we're seeing as the past. Whereas this patient is what we're seeing as the future. So essentially this patient had exactly the same clinical situation as the top patient. She had stage 4 ovarian cancer, very widespread, essentially inoperable, tried the chemotherapy, same chemotherapy as the patient above, 
as you can see, absolutely no response. So this is actually our second patient in Innovate. We were able to get her onto a clinical trial. Um, so this is showing that clinical trial drug. What you can see is your CR125 has gone down, down, down to baseline. And here, 36 months later, she is well and happy. So I think this is what we want to see. So this is the past and this is the future. So we've got um, a number of patients um, now who progressed onto, and, and a number of them have gone on to early clinical trials, some of which are, are MAPS clinical trials, we're going to hear from soon. We've got a few that um, um, have been identified for a trial enrollment. Unfortunately, we've had a couple who've progressed and we have not been able to get them onto clinical trials. So even though it's a good news story, there's still we still have a bit of a way to go. So the future of cancer, can we find the cure? We think that precision cancer treatment is one way of tackling the many diseases we call cancer. We have to put an end to this one-size-fits-all approach. And I think um, the journey has started, but we've really got a long way to go. And I think these types of studies uh, will help uh, to determine the way that we can implement precision treatment and hopefully, um, ultimately, improve outcomes. So rather than just treating young you know, everyone the same, but we sort them into, into the apples and oranges and actually give every patient the, um, the treatment they need. So the next panellist um, is Associate Professor Matt uh, Carlino, who's a medical oncologist here at Westmead um, at a Blackdown Hospital. Um, he's a clinical academic, member of the Melanoma Institute of Australia, um, and does a lot of clinical trials and research. Okay, so um, thanks. I'm going to mainly talk about immunotherapy using a few melanoma examples, but then moving on. And I think my talk will lead nicely into Ken's, who looks at um, another way of doing immunotherapy. Okay, so um, this is a picture of a patient of mine who I met, I think, five or six years ago when I was a trainee. And the reason I show this picture is I met him before Christmas. Um, he didn't look like this before Christmas. These here are little, those lumps on his shoulder are lumps of melanoma. And he met us before Christmas. We didn't have any good treatments for melanoma six or seven years ago. And he went away, had Christmas with his family, and came back looking like this in late January. And what had happened is all his melanoma had started shrinking without any drug treatment. And at the same time, he developed this patchy skin, which is termed vitiligo. And we were quite surprised because not many people's tumours shrink without any treatment. And secondly, what was happening with this patchy skin? This chap is still alive and well five years later, having received no drug treatment at all. And so what's happened to this gentleman is, for some reason, his immune system has started to attack his tumour, leading to all of his melanoma um, deposits shrinking and disappearing. And at the same time, he's developed this vitiligo. And the vitiligo is almost a side effect of his immune system, where while his immune system is killing the melanoma, it's gone on to lead to the loss of pigmentation. And his skin now is more patchy, his hair is white, and really, if you like, his own immune system has done the job of our treatment. Unfortunately, this happened rarely, so I've seen this twice, um, and we average to see maybe three or 400 melanoma patients a year. So it does happen where patients can, if you like, be cured by themselves. But clearly, one in a hundred or one in five hundred isn't good enough. So that this idea of a spontaneous remission, which is what we term it, has had people thinking for many years about the immune system in cancer. And we know that people's immune system interacts with their cancer. We know that if your immune system sees your cancer, your prognosis is better. And one way of thinking of this idea is the three E's of your immune system. So. One of the jobs of your immune system is to kill off viruses and foreign bugs, but also one of the jobs of your immune system is to kill cancer. So your immune system can attempt to eliminate the cancer. And that's why most of us don't, develop, uh, don't get cancers every day of our life. Our immune system eliminates these cancers before we even know about them. We can then have a stage where the immune system keeps your cancer in check, but it can't get rid of it. And this is a situation where you may have cancer, you don't know it, but for some reason it stays small, it stays under control because of your immune system. But unfortunately, the patients I see and the patients that get to an oncologist or get to a surgeon is because their cancer has escaped their immune system. So the theory behind immunotherapy is how can you push this backwards? How can you take a cancer which has escaped the immune system and push it back, ideally all the way to eliminate because then you're cancer. 
your immune system can cure that cancer. So how can that be done? Really, I'm going to talk you through two drugs which, in a way, appear too simple to actually work, but they do, about how these drugs interact with the immune system. So this is a picture um, we drew where here's a lump of tumour for melanoma. This could be a melanoma in someone's lung or their liver or anywhere in the body. These cells are tumour cells. These are T cells. This is part of your immune system. And this cell here, it's another part of the immune system and its job is to eat the cancer, if you like. It eats a small bit of cancer and it takes that cancer away. It takes it over to a thing called a lymph node. These are the glands that swell up in your neck when you get, you get um, the flu. And it introduces your, your immune system to the cancer. Your, can your immune system now hopefully knows that the cancer is bad, but your body has this finely tuned balancing system. Some parts of the immune system want to go off and kill the cancer. Other signals say, look, don't kill this thing. We want to keep it all nice and happy. If you block the negative signal, that activates the immune system. So one of the drugs that was developed probably 10, 15 years ago now allows this immune cell to be activated. So this is a drug given through the drip. That part of the immune system then travels back to the cancer. So you've then got a signal where your immune system is interacting with the cancer. The cancer then has a very tricky signal to tell your immune system not to kill it. So if you like, you've got your immune system there, it knows the cancer is not part of you, it wants to kill it, but the immune system, the cancer cell, produces a don't kill me signal. And one of the more commonly used anti-cancer drugs, drugs that people may have heard of, called Keytruda, which is pembrolizumab or Optivo, another one of these drugs, all it does is block this don't kill me signal. To show, um, Roger talked about a slow amount of progress and then maybe changes over the last five years. But melanoma is one of those tumours where the progress recently has been quite rapid. So patients historically have had what's called stage four melanoma, melanoma that's spread, had a chance of being alive at one year of 25%. And that means, unfortunately, that 75% of people are no longer alive and have passed away. The different drugs that have been developed have come on quite rapidly. So the first of these immune drugs, all the immune drugs are in pink, took that survival to almost 50%, which is an improvement, but it means, unfortunately, one in two people are still dying by one year. Our most active immune drugs, when we use two immune drugs together, so those two parts of the picture, we have a one-year survival of 75%. So in the space of five years, we've gone from 75% of people being dead to 75% of people being alive. Now, while that's a significant improvement for one year, one year is a relatively short amount of time if you're 20, 30, 50, 60, 70, 80, or 90. People don't want to just live for one year. So what we've found as we've been using these drugs more and more, but these, these drugs are translating into longer-term survival. So instead of the chance of being alive at five years being about 3%, the chance of being alive at five years is somewhere in the order of 50 and 60%. So clearly a significant improvement over the last five years but also showing that there's a significant amount of work to come to get that five-year survival from 50 or 60% up towards ideally 100%. This slide here is to remind me all these little lines are patients, and if the line goes down, the drug's working and the cancer's shrinking, and if the line goes up, unfortunately, the drug's not working. And this to say is that these simple immunotherapies, which were initially developed for melanoma, where most people get tumor shrinkage, are used in lots of different cancers. So the cancer uh, we were talking about a second ago, and I was talking about ovarian cancer. Not many people are helped by these immune drugs, but it does work for some people. And the important question is how do you work out who they are? But there are other tumours where these drugs work for more people. So one of the questions today was about cure. And so one of the questions I grapple with a lot from patients is, am I cured? This curve here, is a curve of patients. And unfortunately, every time this curve goes down, one of the patients that started on those drugs is, is no longer alive. And for this drug, the first of our immune drugs, the chance of being alive at five years and 10 years was 20%. And while that's not very good, it's better than 0%, which was the historical number. It's harder with our new drugs, because if you're on a drug that's been around for five years, how do you know what's gonna happen in 10 years? When we talked about that immune drug, the, the Keytruda drug, the of the first 100 people to get that drug in the world, about 20 of them were at Westmead. 
So those people don't know what 10 years looks like because they were the first people to get the drug. So when we use one immune drug alone, we can say the chance of being alive at three years is maybe 50-50. When we use two drugs, we can say the chance of being alive at three years is 70%. But it's quite difficult for these patients who were the first in the world to get them to know what 10 years is like because if you like, they're going to get to 10 years first. So the people that started out on these treatments inform the rest of the world about what the cure rate is. Unfortunately, it's not going to be 100%. We already know, even for these very active immune drugs, the cure rate may be for melanoma in the order of 50%. The next question we often struggle with is, is the drug working? So this is a patient, not of ours, this is a patient on one of the trial we were running, but she was actually in France. Um, that is a, a lump of melanoma on her groin, so on her upper thigh, and that is a lump of melanoma in her liver. And at 12 weeks, you would say that clearly this drug is not working. That lump is five times as big and the lump in the liver is bigger. And historically, you, the discussion you have with this person is unfortunately the drugs are not working, there are no other drugs. But then this happens. And this is something we don't really understand where your immune system can just be a bit slow or it takes time to turn around. So this creates a lot of problems for us in that it's a good, very good problem for this woman who's still alive, by the way, many years later. But for every person that turns around, there's another one who doesn't. So we spend a lot of time trying to pick who's going to turn around because clearly people need to know, am I going to be like this lady and do really well? Or do I need to look at other treatments at this point? So that's it for me, just a quick introduction and take any questions. Sorry about the slides. Any burning questions? Yeah, so that's probably another very topical thing. So um, what the question is, is your biome right? So your microbiome is really the, the bugs that you got. And so there's three groups around the world who have taken people with melanoma, tested their poo essentially, and been able to predict how well the melanoma in their brain or their liver or their lung will shrink based on the bugs in their poo. And you can pick the patients who are going to shrink, their melanoma's going to shrink based on the bugs in their poo. And so in theory, you can predict who's going to respond based on that. There's a few problems with that. So that's fantastic information and we're starting to do things like try to alter people's microbiome to see if the drugs work. But there are problems and difficulties. Uh, one example is the study of the poo was done in three places, Boston and Texas. If anyone, and, and Paris, if anyone's been to Boston or Texas, the food is completely different. So the bugs that are good in Boston are not the good bugs in, in, um, in uh, Texas and so on. The next question is, if you take those bugs you know, in a probiotic, will the drug work better? And we don't know the answer to that. And the big question for us is, is Sydney more like Texas or Boston or Paris? So it's not, it definitely means something. We don't know how to manipulate that yet. But it's something that's being talked about a lot, about how to manipulate those bugs to hopefully improve the work. And our third discussant um, is Dr. Kenneth Micklethwaite, um, who's also a clinical academic here at the University of Sydney's Westmead Clinical School. Um, and uh, he's a haematologist and blood and marrow stem cell transplant physician at Westmead Hospital. Now, you've heard uh, Matt's fantastic talk about marshalling the immune system to fight cancer. And I think it's fair to say that we really are in a sign, an age of scientific revolution at the moment, particularly as, as um, it refers to cancer treatment. Um, we have a, a, an explosion in our understanding of the genetic um, mechanisms that underlie the development of cancer, the way that those, that those genetic mechanisms actually lead to cancer, and hence how we can potentially specifically target individual derangements that are in cancer. We have various ways of actually activating the immune system against the cancer. And, and one of the things about Matt's talk in particular is that it's all about removing the breaks from the immune cells that we've already got that are there looking to fight the cancer. Um, and 
So Matt talked about essentially giving a, a drug which targets that, that molecule that acts as a break on the immune system. And that then allows the immune system, particularly this subset of immune cells called T cells, to actually <clears throat> kill tumor cells they recognize as being foreign and rec or, or recognize as being abnormal and a threat to our survival. But what if there's actually no key in the ignition to start the immune system in the first place? Removing the brakes is not going to have any effect whatsoever. So <clears throat> I think it's a good idea to take a little step back and look at how T cells, how the immune system, how T cells in particular, which are the primary targets of these checkpoint inhibitors that remove the brakes, how T cells work and, and how they're actually, how they're, they're started. So basically, <clears throat> as Matt um, suggested before, T cells have a, have a big role in, in uh, fighting a variety of threats to our body, including things like viruses. In fact, that's probably the commonest role that T cells uh, play in our body. And the way they do that is through the use of very specific receptors that are on the surface of the T cells. And essentially those receptors have a very specific shape that will only interact with a corresponding inverse specific shape, very much like a key in a lock. And so when a T cell encounters a virus infected cell, if it has a receptor that matches proteins on virus proteins that are on the surface of the infected cell, it will see that that cell is infected, it will become activated by that interaction with the key and lock mechanism, and it will then kill the virus infected cell and prevent the virus from spreading to other cells in the body. Now the problem with a lot of cancers, particularly blood cancers like leukemia, is that in actual fact, there are no receptors on the surface of the, of the T cells that exist in our body that actually correspond to abnormal proteins or, or to, to, to cancer proteins. And in actual fact, in all those waterfall plots that, that Matt showed where those people don't respond, one of the reasons for that, and there are probably quite a number, but one of the reasons for that is that there are no T cells with receptors that correspond to the proteins that are part of the, of the tumour. And so what happens is if there's no correspondence between the T cell receptor and any of the proteins on the surface of the cancer cell, that T cell will not be able to see the cancer cell as being abnormal, will not be able to see it as a threat, won't become activated, and permits the cancer cell to proliferate and proliferate and eventually take over the person's body and kill the person. So there's this um, new field called chimeric antireceptors, or this, this new invention called chimeric antireceptors, which enable the T cells to actually now see the cancer and act very much like a new ignition in the, in the T cells. And what we do is we take a, a gene that codes for a receptor that recognises um, cancer proteins, and we insert that into the T cell, creating a chimeric antireceptor or CAR T cell. And basically that receptor is expressed on the surface of the T cell and now can interact much like a lock, a key and a lock mechanism with proteins on the surface of the cancer cell. It can then become activated and very much like a T cell responding to a viral infected cell, it can then eliminate that cancer cell and prevent its spread. And so chimeric antireceptors have actually been developed for a wide variety of cancers. Almost any cancer you can think of, someone has actually created a chimeric antireceptor specific for that tumour. But by far the most advanced in clinical application and the most successful in clinical application today is those targeting a, a protein called CD19 which is on the surface of uh, acute lymphoblastic leukemia and a variety of lymphomas. 
Now this here shows the historical outcomes of um, children who've had more than one relapse after receiving standard chemotherapy for acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And this curve, in fact, is actually very similar to the outcomes with standard chemotherapy for adults who've relapsed just once after chemotherapy. And you can see here that the, the five-year survival is, is about 10%. 10-year survival is even less than that. And this is the survival in a recent study published in the New England Journal of Medicine where children and young adults received chimeric antireceptor T cells at target CD19. And so you can see here, although the, the, um, the follow-up is obviously not five or 10 years yet, at two years time, your survival is about 50%, which is a, you know, quite a significant uh, improvement from the 10 to 15% in the historical uh, patients. Now obviously this is not perfect, there's still 50 to, you know, about 50% of people who um, have additional, <clears throat> additional work to be done, but this is a huge improvement on the historical setting. So here at Westmead we've actually developed our own homegrown CAR T cells targeting this same CD19 protein and we've instituted a, a, a series of clinical trials um, using our homegrown CAR T-cells. And I just wanted to give you uh, a couple of examples of the early um, results. We've only started treating patients uh, on these clinical trials in January of this year at Westmead Hospital. So you can see here, this is a scan from a young girl, a 25-year-old female, who had acute lymphoblastic leukemia and had relapsed after all of the standard therapies, including chemotherapy and also an allogeneic stem cell transplant, a bone marrow transplant. So essentially this girl was looking at almost certain death. Um, post uh, relapse after the transplant, in fact, none of the chemotherapy actually had any um, significant effect on her tumor, uh, on her leukemia. And in January of this year, she was admitted to hospital with severe pain related to a progressively enlarging tumor in the top of her, her, uh, her lungs. She also had this particular tumour which uh, was, pre was present uh, in her sternum as well as other masses in her abdomen and her uh, sinus. This one in her sternum was actually quite easy to see and feel. It was about the size of a small orange. We gave her chimericanin receptor T cells and um, we were gratified to see that uh, her, her CAR T cells became detectable in the peripheral blood after four days and peaked at 12 days after infusion. At 10 days after infusion, the tumour in the centre of her chest became exquisitely tender and then literally shrank before our eyes over a, over a three or four day period. So that by the time that she uh, was discharged, the only evidence that um, a tumour had existed there was that she had persistent tenderness in that area in her chest. And this is a very early scan, so 20 days after receiving these CAR T cells, you can see that that, that tumour, which was that bright yellow spot, has uh, completely resolved. And one of the most amazing things was that this girl, who'd been unwell since early in 2014, um, had, had her, diagnose, her diagnosis of acute leukemia about three or four weeks after her wedding, had never really had a chance to have a proper holiday with her husband um, in, in the last four years. And so she took the opportunity after these CAR T cells, knowing that not everyone is cured, she took the opportunity to, uh, to go on a number of holidays, including to Tasmania and New Zealand earlier this year, and was constantly sending me pictures, texting me pictures, showing me what a wonderful time um, she was having. And I just wanted to briefly mention a second young boy, 18 years of age, who had, again, acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Um, he uh, had also had high intensity chemotherapy, had also had a myeloblated uh, transplant from his, his uh, sister in 2016. And then he had very early signs of relapse in the middle of 2017, where by very, very sensitive techniques, they were able to detect his leukemic cells in the bone marrow coming back. Uh, but he remained well 
the treatments, uh, attempted treatments of this, what we call minimal residual disease, were unfortunately were unsuccessful. And he developed a full-blown relapse in March of this year while we were um, uh, initiating the production of the CAR T cells for him. So he went on to receive a number of, of um, very intensive chemotherapy and, and, and uh, alternative therapies, but unfortunately was completely resistant to those treatments. Also, during those treatments, he developed a severe infection of his lung, um, which meant that when he got to us, he was incredibly unwell. So this, uh, you can see here at the bottom of, of his lung on this, this scan, this is actually a, a very large fungal infection. Um, so this boy, without CAR T cells, was um, literally going to die in about a week to a week and a half. Um, we gave him the CAR T cells and he promptly became very, very unwell due to a combination of the CAR T cells uh, responding to the very active leukemia and the presence of the infection. Um, so I gave him the CAR T cells and then I went on holiday um, to the United States and so I, I handed him over to my colleague that was, was obsessively following his, his progress on my computer um, from, uh, from Harry Potter world. And um, we had to give him very high dose steroids to prevent him dying from the, the effect of the CAR T cells as they interacted with his tumour. But we were able to nurse him through that and he was able to be discharged from hospital 15 days after receiving the CAR T cells. And he's now several months post that and he has no detectable leukemia in his body, even by the most sensitive methods available. Now, while they're one piece of the evolving puzzle now, they are certainly revolutionary. CAR T cells are certainly revolutionary. Um, we've initiated our own homegrown trials here. And so far, the results that we've seen are consistent with the international states. Um, we think that the integration of CAR T cells into the overall management of these patients, particularly with very difficult um, uh, leukemia and lymphoma, um, will provide them with a source of hope and, and hopefully a cure. And we're particularly proud of our homegrown CAR T cell program because we see this as actually a, a platform, uh, as a foundation for CAR T cells targeting a whole range of cancers. Um, as, we, as we develop new CAR, um, CAR T cells moving into the future. Okay, so I'm going to um, finish off the, the introductory uh, series of, of chats uh, by talking about the use of big data uh, to select the best treatment. This, in many ways, illustrates what hundreds of different um, cancer research organisations around the world are trying to do uh, in principle, um, but we have some unique aspects of this which I'll point out as we go along. What I'm about to um, cover in the, in the next 30 seconds or so is, is very similar to what um, Anna described earlier on, and that is that different cancers, so uh, the same type of cancer in different patients may look the same down the microscope, um, but they've got different molecular characteristics. So the icebergs may all look the same from the top, um, but because of their molecular composition, um, they're different below the surface. So, and again, to use the same sort of graphic, um, uh, number of patients with the same sort of tumour, uh, they're colour-coded because they've got different uh, molecular compositions. We would like to be able to sort them into the appropriate categories so that we can use the most appropriate um, treatment for each of the, of the patients. I need to explain, uh, for those of you um, who don't have a biology background, what are the key molecules that we want to look at. Um, you've heard a little bit about the DNA changes um, uh, that uh, occur in cancers. Um, and, you know, the, one of the central paradigms of biology is that DNA is like the computer code um, uh, that runs, um, is responsible for coding all of the functions of life. Um, RNA is like um, a copy of that, a working copy, but a small part of the DNA. 
which then gets used mostly uh, to produce protein. And the proteins are, are where most of the action is, not all, uh, but a lot of it um, is in the proteins. So you can think of it, of the DNA as like the complete set of recipes. Um, the RNA is like one working copy of the DNA, uh, they're maybe on a different sort of paper. Um, and then the protein is like the cake. Now that's a rather trivial example because you know, cakes are not the most important food, or well, maybe they are for some people. Um, um, but the proteins carry out all of the, or many of the major functions of life. So the terminology here is that the genome is like the entire recipe book, so that's the whole collection of genes. Um, and the proteome is like the entire collection of all of the cakes that could be made from the recipes. So just that word to remember, the proteome. Okay, so what we would like to do in order to sort the people uh, with the same tumour, as far as the microscopic appearance is concerned, into the appropriate categories for treatment um, is to do all the things we do at the moment. We need the histopathology, so it's looking at the microscope. We want the clinical information. Um, that's something that you should never lose sight of, you know, the clinical insights and expertise um, that Matt and Ken bring to their patients. You know, the value of that should never ever be underestimated. It's critically important. But then we want to analyze the DNA, the RNA, and the protein and put that all together, all of this information together with data science um, and interpret it um, in, in order to decide what is the most appropriate treatment for each individual patient. Okay, now, so where are we with that? I mentioned that there are many hundreds of research organisations around the world that are really trying to do this in principle. And we've been very good for many years now due to um, quite amazing developments in DNA sequencing technology at sequencing the DNA, so reading the genetic code. Uh, it's essentially the same technology which is read for reading the RNA, um, sort of a permutation of that. But until recently, it has been um, impossible to look at the proteins on the, uh, uh, on the scale that is needed in the height and the throughput that's needed. Now, so what we have done, so our contribution um, to this internationally, um, is to build a facility next door at Children's Medical Research Institute, which we call PROCAN, which stands for the ACRF International Centre for the Proteome of Human Cancer. And what this does is, for the first time, allow us to analyse tumours um, and look at thousands of proteins in the tumours um, in a very short period of time. So this requires a, a people with a whole variety of skill sets. Um, we need software engineers and data scientists. We've built a team now of 15 software engineers and data scientists. Uh, anatomical pathology, so this is to put the histopathology together with all the rest of the data, uh, proteomics and oncology. And um, here is a fairly recent picture of the team, uh, which has grown to about 27. Uh, so quite a few people come um, and joined us since this picture was taken. So, but what this is about, the strategy is this. So, we take um, a collection of tumours for which the outcome of treatment is already known. So we know when we have a tumour analyse what treatment it had that was given to that patient and whether it was a success or failure. We want to analyse both the genome and the proteome. So the genome can be done elsewhere. Uh, we do the proteome because it's the only place at the moment that we can do that in my throughput. Now we put this all together to see if we can use advanced computational analysis to predict the best treatment for each individual patient. Um, over the next few years, we're planning to analyse 70,000 um, uh, cancers from children and adults, all types of cancers. Um, we estimate that this will require 100 to 200 collaborations around Australia and internationally, and we'll be making the data publicly available. So, What's this all about? Um, so what we're aiming to do is that when a patient is newly diagnosed with cancer, we want to be able to analyze all of the relevant molecules. Um, we think it will be especially the proteins, but there'll be certainly a role for DNA as well. Use computer algorithms to predict the best treatment. And then the aim is to deliver the individualized treatment recommendation to the cancer clinician within 36 hours of receiving the cancer sample. 
we can already do the proteomic analysis within that time period. We don't have to do any further research and development to get to that point, um, to be able to deliver the proteomic data within 36 hours. It's just at the moment, before we build the huge database, uh, we won't necessarily know what, it, what that proteomic information actually means. So, what are the potential benefits of this? Um, it's been well documented in many types of cancers that if you get the most effective treatment first, it increases the chance of cure. We've known that for 40 years for, for many different types of cancers. You'll avoid side effects of treatments that won't work for a given patient. Um, as, a, as a small bonus, we'll replace some of the existing protein tests which are done one at a time um, uh, in pathology departments already. Um, and although this is not the major aim, because we will be creating such an enormous database of new knowledge, we would be very surprised if that doesn't highlight um, new cancer treatments for development, sorry, new targets for the development of new um, treatments. Um, so, almost finished here. So, how far have we got? Um, we don't have even proof of principle. Um, uh, data to, to point to yet, but we have built the lab, uh, we've built a high-performance computer that handles the data, uh, we have developed streamlined proteomic technology. One of the challenges in order to get through 70,000 tumours over the next five to seven years is we have to operate the lab around the clock, um, which wasn't necessarily, um, you know, a lot of people predicted that wouldn't be possible, but we're almost um, to that point. And um, since we started, we've generated 5,500 proteomes. So that's closer to 6,000 now. And we're building the software. The high-performance computing facility has been built. Um, and um, we are building a software pipeline for sharing the data with collaborators. We've been very fortunate to receive funding um, from all of these um, great agencies. And uh, we're plowing ahead with the project. I hope in a few years' time, that will be able to tell you what we've been able to achieve with the big data um, for some individual patients. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.